Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, the keynote address and SEG President's State of the Society address from the opening session at the 89th annual meeting in San Antonio, Texas. Up first, the SEG President Rob Stewart presents the State of the Society Address, summarizing the year in applied geophysics and what to expect in 2020 for the society and in the industry. Rob is followed by the keynote speaker from San Antonio, Walter Guidros. Dr. Guidros serves as Program Coordinator of the Energy Resources Program at the U.S. Geological Survey. His keynote address is called The Evolution of Unconventional Play Analysis at the USGS. The episode ends with a Q&A from the audience. This episode is sponsored by TGS. TGS is the global gateway to subsurface intelligence from seismic to well data. As a leading geoscience data provider to the energy industry, TGS invests in onshore and offshore multi-client data projects in an array of basins worldwide, ranging from new entry frontier markets to established mature basins. TGS's extensive data library portfolio services the entire upstream life cycle from exploration through the appraisal and development stage. Leveraging the breadth of this world-class library, TGS enhances the exploration process through advanced analytics and analytics-ready data products. Now, Rob Stewart and Walter Guidros. Well, thank you so much, everybody. I, I'm just thrilled to be here. It's a delight to see you all, and, and thank you again. Uh, today, today is a, a great year. This year is a great year of, of anniversaries. And I'd like to take us on a journey, a voyage, a quest, a quest for resources, a quest for prosperity uh, that's bringing us all into, uh, into a new world. I, I like alliterations, T words. Uh, so we're going to talk about targets, techniques, training, our times, the 2020s, lots of, uh, lots of things. But particularly an amazing welcome to San Antonio. We're just, uh, we're just so thrilled to be here. The weather's cooperating. It's just a, just a treat with the, with the riverboats and everything. And it, it reminds me that uh, take a chance to see the area. Of course, we've got to remember the Alamode, some of the, uh, some of the great historic sites of the foundation of this country, the beginnings of this country. And uh, uh, we've got caverns, we've got caves, we've got lots of educational programs. So great to, great to have you here. Now, this year is a very special year in terms of anniversaries, in terms of the, some of the wonderful explorations. Now, some of us may end up navigating on the riverboats, but others have done these fabulous journeys. And when we think of Apollo 11 with Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, just what a fabulous voyage they had some 50 years ago, the beginning, the first people to step on another celestial body. Uh, and what were they really after? Of course, they had to learn how to do it. There were competitive aspects. But in a sense, what we really learned was geoscience. That was the target. Really, that's what we brought back. That's much of what we learned. It was resources. What does the moon hold for us? And uh, what did we learn? It was, it was really geoscience. Hopefully, as you know, then in five years from now, sticking with the five theme, uh, there will be another voyage. There will be another voyage to the moon, and we hope that we have boots on the moon again very shortly. Furthermore, perhaps a little bit less well-known, 500 years ago, when we think of that very, very special day in both Portugal and Spain, that uh, Magellan, Magellan set off almost 500 years ago to the day on this spectacular voyage around the world. No antibiotics, a little, a little vessel. Uh, before he left, of course, and before Columbus left, 
that was, uh, here's a little map of what the world looked like and what people thought it looked like. So that was fabulous. Before these great uh, voyages of discovery in the 1400s and 1500s, then Pedro Cabral and others from uh, Europe started venturing, trying to find the Far East. They got blown off course and had some of the first European visits to, uh, to Brazil. And when we look at the different languages that are spoken around the world, we can look back at the history and understand this very rich set of traditions and explorations that gave rise to the, the wonderful histories and the mixes that we have. So there, there we were in, uh, in the early 1500s. And then this spectacular voyage by Magellan some 500 years ago when Magellan set off from Spain in this little uh, Carrick, the now, now Victoria. And uh, if you get a chance to see models of this, it's, it's, a little, it's a little boat that's basically about 80 feet long. It's a, it's a very small vessel. And they braved the world, sailed around the world. And then, of course, the map with all of this new information looked like this. Uh, I like to bring maps to us because we're very visual and, and kind of graphic people. And the result of so many of our travails, our efforts, our trials are really to produce maps. So when we think of our geosciences and our geography, it's really a lot about maps. How do we see the world on the surface? And then more importantly to us, how do we see the world in the subsurface? And I would say a lot of the, the, lot of the motivation for these voyages was really about resources. People were looking for resources. We were wandering, we were wondering, we were winning, we were finding what does the world hold for us? How can we expand? How can we bring prosperity? And this really struck me in Dubai recently. The SCG co-hosted a meeting on drilling. In, uh, in Dubai, and I was looking out my hotel window, and there's a picture of it here, and it was just so clear to me, in a sense, what happens. We take sand, in a sense, we mix that with energy, and then we build these fabulous towers that are really pinnacles, that are mountains to our human creativity. And this is the way prosperity works. Resources, our creative spirit, energy, and we build our cultures. Now, when we think about that, uh, we imagine, here's a little graph, again, being graphical people, we can look at uh, something like the Human Development Index, which most of us agree on, education, uh, child welfare, longevity. And you can see that that correlates with energy use. But it's not linear. And if you look at where 80% of the population is, in a sense, maybe down at a 0.8, we all want to be up at a 1.0. So if you look at uh, the people who are in in 0.8, in a sense, how much energy is used. And then you look at where we'd like to be, like here today, in this beautiful area of San Antonio. It doesn't take a couple percent more. It might take 10 times as much energy. It's very nonlinear. So in a sense, this is where we correlate. We're going to need probably a lot more energy. And think of it, just bitcoins, if we go to exchange of currency that requires something like a bitcoin transaction, bitcoin transactions already use the electrical output of a country like Ireland or Switzerland. That's just to make a transaction. So if we imagine real honeymoons where we do go to the moon for our celebration of marriages, imagine what that starts to tax at. It's about a million dollars of fuel if you filled up at the local Chevron or Exxon station. So uh, we're going to probably need a lot more energy, and it could be very nonlinear what we need. Now, BP, again, provides wonderful figures, and some of, the, some of them you can see here. These have become quite popular. But almost everybody thinks we're going to use more energy. And here's some example for both transportation and, uh, and industrial, as well as residential uses. 
Where are we going to, uh, to use that? Of course, we're sitting at somewhere about 7.7 billion people on Earth right now. And uh, we all want to have more comfortable, convenient, prosperous, healthy, productive lives. And of course, Asia is taking in a lot of that growth, comprises a lot of growth. So there's going to be no lack of demand for increased prosperity. Now, where are we going to get that? Of course, uh, Glenn very clearly pointed out early on that, uh, that much of that will come from our hydrocarbons, petroleum. Uh, right now, we're entering into a new phase. There, is, there are transitions going on. We're responsible for the whole molecule's life, and, and many of here, we have expertise in how to do that, and we're ready to take that challenge on from the beginning, the discovery, to the recovery, to the remediation, and that becomes our extended job. But there are lots of renewables, and that's great. We want more energy. I think we're somewhat agnostic. Uh, we're, we're trying to build countries, people, prosperous cultures, and we want more energy, and that can come from a lot of different sources. Uh, I'd like to position us that we're not for and against all different kinds of energy. We're geo people, we're technical people. I always say a day without seismic is a day without sunshine, and have seismic, we'll travel. We'll go anywhere, I'll look for anything. And so it's not a competition for and against. We're the geo people, we're the technical people. We'll look for it geothermal. That's definitely in our bailiwick. It's a renewable, let's go look for it. Let's make it real, let's make it more practical. Uh, hydro, hydropower, there's tons for us to do with hydroelectric power. It has its own issues, but we can help, and you can see how. Uh, solar, who finds all those materials? Where's the best quartz? Where's the best silica for it? How do we dispose of all these things? What's, what are the rare earth materials that go into these panels? That's our job. So we can participate, we can help prosper, as well as wind. What kind of geography should we put it in? How do we manage this? What about the vibrations? What about the owls, the birds, everything else? How do we help with all of these new sources? That's our expansion of scope, and we're good at it, and we can continue on with this. Uh, and where are we going to look? I've always felt we are international, we are global. I think we're galactic. Uh, but nonetheless, when we think of where resources, the equation can be applied anywhere. The resources are everywhere. I had the opportunity recently to be in Australia last week at the ASCG, uh, which again, 50th anniversary, the SCG founded the Australian aspects and then they rapidly converted to an independent uh, section. But you can see they evaluated, one of their evaluations was where are the most prospective countries to look? And a lot of these countries are a little new for us, but they've had some, Senegal, Guyana, have had some fabulous discoveries, conventional oil and gas. Of course, in Australia, what they're really interested in is the country rankings for cricket, but. <laughs> so then again, when we're thinking of, of our internationalization, uh, I think of it in terms of where, where are the people, where are the internet capabilities, where is modern uh, thinking going on, where are the resources, where are the expenditures, and we can see that the US, Europe, and China have somewhat similar price parity uh, populations and, and uh, economies. So we're certainly global, we're certainly international in terms of our markets, our consumption, our people, and our resources. Incidentally, you can see how things change over time. Different cultures, different cultures rise, different cultures have, uh, have different histories, and of course they rise and they fall, and they rise again. Uh, because, we're, because we're map people, and one of our themes here is these wonderful voyages, you can actually plot the world's economies, 
with an epicentral idea, so just take away the center of gravity of the economies of the world and watch how that center of, center of mass or the center of the world's economy moved back and forth. And you can see that it, it migrated from, uh, from Asia back toward the US through Europe and back again. So these are some ways that we can try to understand what's happening with our cultures, our economies, our resources. And for us in the SDG, where are our opportunities and where are our, our, our demands? Now we have to show some seismic. I'd just like to say that our techniques, our technologies are getting so much, uh, are stronger and better. And uh, one of my former students, uh, Ashraf Khalil, happened to be looking as the uh, reservoir steward in, in Petronas. And you can see on, uh, on your left, a conventional picture of, a, of an area. They've got lots of gas there, but they're looking for oil. And then on the right, applying some more advanced technology, multi-component ocean bottom nodal technology. And you can see the uplift, the, the much better picture, for example. Nodal technology, another big advancement. Now, I'm, I'm all in favor of uh, many places for nodes. One of the big reasons is I had, at the university, we had cables up and down the hall, and two of my geology colleagues walked by, and they said, why do geophysicists always have cables? And the other geologist said, well, that's so they can find their way home. Now, I don't want that ever to be said again. Also, that was a conventional play. Unconventional plays, as we're going to hear a lot more about this week, we can throw a lot of our technology at that. We've got um, 3Ds, we've got petrophysics, you can see some here. We map those, we can try to have machines learn what we know, and they can get some of that, some of they can do a lot faster. Then we target, we can geosteer. So in the unconventional world, we have a tremendous amount to offer too. Then we go to some of the expanding scopes, infrastructure. This is just, a, again, the, the great interconnectedness of all things geophysical. There was a fellow presenting this uh, picture in Australia last week. It turned out that the data were from Alberta. And there are a couple of comments you would have heard. Are you from Texas? No, but I got here as soon as I could. Uh, of course, we feel that way about our homelands and, and, and country, places like Alberta and, and elsewhere. But uh, this was Alberta data being shown in Perth by a company who was headquartered uh, several companies together. But it really uh, struck me, this is a beautiful, shallow, shallow picture, and we're making images, and this is a pure shear, shear vibe, shear, shear receivers, that were some of the nicest pictures of the near surface that I'd seen with seismic. So we're looking down even 10 feet, and you can imagine, as, as say in China, there's a whole new Beijing city built that has a charge to image the whole area down to 500 meters, the importance of what we do to infrastructure and our cities and our new cities and all of our, our structures there. But as we move on, we've talked about resources, we've talked about the importance of resources, we've talked about the, the really key things that geophysics has provided for the Earth's prosperity, but how about some of the unexpected benefits of resource exploration? And I think one of our most dear and wonderful cases is uh, with the late Cecil Green. And Cecil was a geophysicist. He, uh, he was involved with starting a little company called Geophysical Service Inc. in the 30s as the foundation, 1930, the foundation of SEG, where people got together and said, we need to know what's in the subsurface for this new target oil with these new techniques, seismic and gravity. So he developed a bunch of crews. Uh, they found that there were inadequate instrumentation. He founded a little subsidiary called Texas Instruments. And that little subsidiary did things like have the first handheld calculators. They invented the first um, handheld radios. They were charged and credited with the first integrated circuits. And they were 
I was directly in, uh, benefited. The Cecil Green donated a lot of the geophysics buildings around the continent at School of Mines, at MIT, at UBC, and I had the opportunity to spend five years in this building. Uh, TI right now is 30,000 people with $16 billion, which is basically bigger than the whole seismic industry. Unbelievable serendipity. The results of our creativity as geophysicists and what that can spin off. Now, I was also just uh, looking at some of these lines, and Australia just shot their longest 2D line onshore. A beautiful, beautiful effort. Down 20 seconds, they can see the moho. This is right across the central part of the continent. See those beautiful wiggles? And sure enough, right in the middle of one of the lines, they found an, an undiscovered basin. Nobody knew this basin was here. Some 10 kilometers, brand new basin that hadn't, uh, hadn't been imaged before. How exciting was that for them? Another major story is Pemex in the 70s was exploring in, uh, in, in the Yucatan. A couple of the geophysicists saw that there was something funny that looked circular, huge circles on the gravity data and magnetics data. And that went unconsidered for a while, but then the story started with Walter Alvarez and others that the end of the dinosaurs may have occurred because of a huge meteorite impact. And sure enough, people went back, Alan Hildebrand uh, and others started going back. Some of this story was presented at an SCG meeting. In fact, the first major reference was there's something funny going on with the Yucatan at an SCG meeting, 1981. So uh, people eventually got with Pemex and looked found out that this was the site through Iridium. People were looking all over the world, and sure enough, this was the site of an asteroid that hit the Earth some 65 million years ago and was one of the greatest devastating events in all of geologic history, on, certainly on Earth, and caused the end of the dinosaurs and about half of the other species on Earth. So that understanding of our whole planetary history really came from oil exploration. Now, uh, I'm going to show you something here that's a little sensitive. No matter how hard I try, you keep pushing me aside and I can't break through. There's no talking to you. It's so sad that you're leaving. Okay, share, do you believe? <laughs> 1988. Uh, so, sorry, 1998, this was some 20 years ago that Autotune, uh, Andy Hildebrand, Dr. Andy Hildebrand with Exxon, a founder of Landmark, was looking at autocorrelations and how we change pitch. And his invention was something called Autotune, which was to use the autocorrelation of a sonic of any wavelet and look at where that autocorrelation's spectrum or pitch or frequency should be, and he figured out a way to slightly move that. This is used in almost all recording now often real-time, but certainly in all recordings. Again, knowing seismic signal processing led to probably the, one of the biggest inventions in music in the last 20 years. So uh, auto-tune. Now, it became very popular 20 years ago with Cher and a lot of the rappers and everybody else. Then it became very unpopular, and now it's used more appropriately. So again, what is it that we do? I, I think what, what distinguishes us from theoretical or academic or, or other kinds of geophysics, the AGU geophysics, we have pretty much all the same techniques, the same curiosity, except we're applying our assessments for economic purposes. That's what really makes us, in my mind, applied or exploration geophysicists. We're certainly as capable as any of the theoretical stuff, straight curiosity-driven, 
but we're also taking that next step to make it economic. So just in summary of this part, we, uh, we have increasing demands for all kinds of resources. Uh, it's very much international with the people, the capabilities, the targets, the areas. We have many, many techniques that we can use, and we're developing more, and we are the technical people to do this. Uh, much more, we're the photographers at the wedding. So, uh, and then we've got huge diversity. So we've contributed very much substantially to human prosperity. Now, where are we uh, with, with the SEG? This is really laying the groundwork for a lot of our vision, our, our, uh, our strategy. And first, oh, let's go back one. We're, we're trying something experimental in real time, which you're going to see brave contractors on the floor with their software. Uh, if we go back one, we'll try our first, our first uh, poll. So once again, can we bring up the, uh, we've got an interactive poll. Here's, here's what we know from our, uh, from our membership. Something like probably 28, 30% of our members are actually from Texas in the SCG. Uh, SCG in Canada together combine just under half of our, of our membership. And then uh, other, other regions are there too. So we're, uh, how many people actually have, have brought up the application? Anybody brought up the application? Okay. There should be a little portion in there that allows you to, to do a poll. Okay. <laughs> Ted, I'm seeing Ted Smith here looking. Okay, you know what? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to move on, and our uh, our eight people behind the stage here can can help us sort this out. But um, we're going to we're going to try a, a little. We've got a couple more questions for you too. But really, we're looking at our members. Our members are distributed around the world, and we're anxious to understand what is this digital transformation. And part of the digital transformation is, of course, what you're holding in your hand. And then how we can interact with that, with that transformation is, is absolutely key. And this is just one little example of how we can have some fun, participate in a little bit of a digital transformation. And as well as we're also interested in, in who's here and, and where are y'all from. But I'm going to continue on and we'll try to get back to these questions. With the SEG, of course, like the whole energy and resource industry, we're cyclical, we go up and down. We've had a very challenging time, as you all know, in the last four or five years. But at SEG, with the, uh, the real diligence of the staff and the, the boards and the volunteers, we've weathered the storm. We weathered a, a very major direct literal storm with Harvey two years ago, and we've recovered from that. Uh, we're in very good financial shape. We've, we've exercised a lot of discipline in the last few years. 2019 is a financially positive year, and we're really thrilled to be able to bring that, that to you. We have our real skeleton and muscle, and as we poll people and look at different, uh, different values, of course, it's our publications. And we have the, our major publication, Geophysics. We've got the highest ranking we've ever had in, in history. Geophysics is the real backbone of, of our science. We have interpretation, our joint work with the AAPG, as well as the leading edge. And we're looking for all kinds of other joint possibilities in publications. 
So big kudos to Ted McCamgen and, other, and all the authors, all of you who are creating and submitting work. Now, a real achievement this year was uh, early in the year, we'd almost completed a full translation of our encyclopedia, the, uh, the Sheriff Dictionary. Bob Sheriff was just a, a fabulously productive individual and uh, compiled this over, over many years, and it's gone through edits and, et, and uh, various versions, and it's been translated into Spanish. And uh, earlier this year, we were 92% complete. We're now 100% Terminado. We are finished. We've completed this whole, this whole effort. And so that dictionary is now completely in Spanish with uh, some 6,500 different entries that have all been vetted by, by crews of many dozens of, of bilingual speakers. So kudos and thank you to an, a great example of all of our volunteers who are, uh, who are so involved. Now, a huge part of, of what we do is we try to share what we understand. We try to collaborate. We try to cooperate with the best practices to take our, our world, our science, and our application ahead. And that's a big part of these meetings, our courses, our honorary lectures, our distinguished lectures, our DISC programs. And these have been really valuable, uh, valuable efforts. Kudos to everybody who's attended and all those volunteers who spend hours in airports getting from one site to the other, online, offline, and, and teaching. And one such wonderful instructor is Kurt Marford. I don't, uh, I trust Kurt's here. Um, and Kurt, had something in the end pushing 1,000 people in attendance, 28 stops you can see in 19 countries. A great example, Manika Prasad. Uh, Manika is our current DISC lecturer and she's been all over the world. She's still uh, in progress and I'm sure that uh, her impact will be very similar to Kurt's. So a very important program to, to reach out to the world. Now, there are many different collaborations. We have our sister societies, the, uh, the APG, the SPE, the EAGE, many different organizations. And almost everything we do is actually a collaborative effort. And you can see some of the big uh, successful ones. The unconventional URTEC, some four or 5,000 people at their meetings. Of course, OTC, we were one of the founders, anywhere from 60 to 110,000 people uh, attend. My little equation for these events is OTC is the price of oil times 1,000, SCG is the price of oil times 100, and we're almost at 5,000 right now. So when we made the prediction, oil was 52 bucks a barrel, so I thought, well, 5,200 people, that's what we'll probably look at. Uh, NAEP has been a, has been a, a great uh, event, and we were happy to host uh, the former president, George W. Bush, there this year. IPTC, just recently in China, going to be in the Middle East. And then a very new conference on uh, digital transformation, energy and data, that was first, uh, first undertaken this year in Austin. In the, uh, I guess people are calling Austin the Silicon Hills. They're at, again, they're actually limestone, but that's... <laughs> now a huge part of what we do really is to encourage really, really all of our groups across the world, across different representations, Certainly, we have uh, some 300, over 384 chapters in uh, over 50 countries. And this gives us beautiful richness and differences of experience. And I was just so touched with the student leadership sessions on, on Saturday to hear the testimonials. Uh, one woman was saying that she cobbled her way together to a meeting, she, uh, one of our SEG meetings. She went to one of the employment booths. She actually got a job offer, in this case with Chevron. She worked as an intern with Chevron four years. 
She's, uh, she's been with them and she was back here as a recruiter, recruiting new students. So that was just a beautiful professional story of the impact that we can have on, on different lives. And there's the personal aspect. Um, several of my best friends still in Houston, we were grad students together. We would always meet at SCG meetings. The first one, 1979 in New Orleans uh, at the uh, O'Reilly's Bar. But um, a big part of what we do, we are humans, we, we, we're social. So uh, we encourage that, make some friends, professional colleagues, and uh, hopefully that'll stay forever. Now, uh, there's also thinking of, of students, and we might uh, look at one of, the, one of the field camps. This happens to be supported by the SCG. This was one of our field camps. And we're really thrilled to be able to, to have this camp going, and we believe in hands-on experiential education. Great. So you can see all the different activities that, uh, that are undertaken. Now, I was trying to strip off all the different uh, universities here <laughs> so that there was no preferential treatment. But uh, there's thanking the SCG for all of, all of this, uh, this wonderful support. So once again, the result of contributing to the foundation, our SCG foundation, that will support the different, uh, the different activities. Now, we're in the profession of finding resources and discovering, recovering, and remediating resources. However, we, uh, we are living in social areas. 7.7 uh, .7 billion people on Earth is a lot different than having a million people or a billion people. For example, in 1930, when the SCG was founded, we were under 2 billion people on the planet. We've added 5.7 or more billion people since the SCG was founded. So clearly we have to and we want to and we need to contribute to the social good. And we try to do this with many different ways through our foundation, through many outreach programs. So 2019, in summary, has been a really exciting year. We've had, a, we've had a fabulously active year. Some of the things we've done, we have reached out. We're opening an office in Kuala Lumpur in, in October. We've opened an office at the, uh, in Houston. We hope to have several more uh, where we have representatives and activities closer to our membership that can bring impact. We've uh, hired a new executive director, John Kerr, and, uh, and had a lot of uh, different changes in our senior management team, which have been very positive. We actually decided to sell our campus, our buildings in Tulsa. We felt that uh, our job is to deliver, to deliver benefits to our members, and having a major heavy asset was, uh, was, wasn't in line with delivering. So for people and programs, we're closing the sale in the building we trust in the next two weeks to liberate uh, substantial funds to people and programs. Our expanding scope, we've restructured the whole organization in terms of our staff and our operations into portfolios, activity portfolios, and we're certainly building toward uh, 2020. So where are we going? And uh, we've had some hints on where we're going. So, Great, we actually did have some, some polling that got through. 
So of the folks here, we asked this question, what's your primary industry? You can see that uh, those of you with cell phone access have, have polled. Beautiful, we can see the numbers change. This is, this is lovely. <laughs> you know, if you don't take a risk every day, you're probably not, uh, you're not growing. So this is our risk for today. Uh, fortunately, we know that, that all of you are uh, involved in technology development. We really do want to use it. We like to have some fun. We like to have participation. Or as a big program was participation. So most of you, you can see it's, uh, it's changing. We have most of the people here in, in oil and gas and, and university. And we're actively polling and we want to hear from you. And another aspect of why we we're so keen to do this is we really do want to hear your voice. We want to hear your fingertips. We want to hear your, hear your voice and poll what are our members, who are our members, what our members want, and where do, where do our members feel that we're going. Uh, we're going to try to put these all together so everybody who's logged in and submitted a poll question uh, and answer, we're going to assemble that and have a draw, and we're hoping to get you dinner at Ruth's Chris. So that's... Uh, so uh, Rihanna and others here are going to put that all together and, uh, and get you dinner at Ruth's Chris. So thank you for your, your polling. Uh, we'll, let's just see if we can bring up another question. Where do you think, geof, in, in what fields do you think geophysicists will work 10 years from now? <laughs> so this is fabulous. I'm just so thrilled to be able to see, uh, get those numbers coming in, get on your phone, bring in the polls. So this is interesting. Now, when we were testing some of this yesterday, uh, some of our folks were just putting in various funny things. But uh, we trust that you've all been completely authentic, and these are your, these are your direct answers. Great, so we, th we think that resources are gonna be around in 10 years, that's, that's excellent. Certainly petroleum's gonna be here with us for some time, and we're gonna be working in it. Lots of other minerals and areas are gonna be important to us. Well, fabulous, thank you. So here, uh, we'll capture those guys. Uh, here's some of the things that, that we think there are lots of different areas of, of technology that we anticipate using. Lots of interpretations that we anticipate. Certainly, we've got machine capability, sensor capability, uh, as well as increasing educational and training technologies and abilities. And of course, in the not too distant future, we're going to be using fiber optics around the world. And we've got uh, workshops going on here. We have landed our first seismometer, which is, of course, multi-component on Mars. And you can log in, and this, some of this data is downloadable. And then ultimately, of course, very soon we'll have geophysicists planting geophones on other planetary bodies. So at SEG, uh, we've, had a, we've had a fabulously active year, many changes, many forms of outreach. There's uh, lots of exciting technology. You're gonna see lots of it in the next few days. We're excellently poised. We're very, very well poised for growth and for, uh, for solid delivery and impact. So I would say that uh, there are many, many exciting demands on us. There are very important opportunities. There are critical targets. We've got a lot of work to do. Uh, we've got a lot of opportunities to, 
to tar partake in and share. Uh, there's so many advances going on in technologies, of course, our, our, our prices oscillate as, like this morning. Uh, there are lots of different things we can do, but we'll keep our eyes focused on developing the technology, developing the science, advancing our, our fellow craft, our, our folks. It's so important to keep meeting. There's a recent book called The Geography of Genius, and The Geography of Genius instructs us that we have to keep mixing it up with chaos and, and diverse people and discernment. And discernment is one of the key criteria for developing these creative, innovative hubs. Discernment means that you've got critical people, but interested people who are enthusiastic people and know what good technology is. You're all discerning people here. This is our audience. This is our place to develop and show technologies and to share those practices. So I'd encourage you all have a great time, an elucidating time, an edifying time, an educational time, uh, an enjoyable time. Enjoy the SCG meeting 2019, San Antonio, Texas. Thank you very much. Great, I think, uh, I think we'll just hold for right now uh, any questions or comments, happy to um, address those a little bit later. But we'll move on to our, our keynote speaker today. And we're really thrilled to, uh, to introduce an individual from the, um, from the US Geological Survey, or affectionately known as the Survey. And um, Walter Guidros came to us uh, via Louisiana from Switzerland. 1760 or so, 1790, came from Switzerland, <laughs> his family, uh, to Louisiana and was invited in by the, uh, the people who lived there. Basically, his family was sort of the Swiss guards to come in and try to help protect Louisiana. And then, of course, over the generations, it led to this, uh, this wonderful career that, that Walter's had through uh, BP and now the last several years at the, at the survey. And he's received degrees, uh, an MBA, a PhD, and a bachelor's from places such as LSU, uh, Old Miss, and other football-oriented colleges, who, <laughs> UT Austin, I, I, I sort of forgot that one, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but a really distinguished background and looked after global, uh, global operations and technologies and, and personnel uh, for both the Western Hemisphere for BP as well as uh, a lot of BP's operation. So I would, I would welcome uh, Dr. Guidros to the stage to uh, give us some instruction on unconventionals, news from the U.S. Geologic Survey, and, and welcome here. Welcome to San Antonio. Thank you. Well, thank you for that kind introduction and the kind words. And um, we really appreciate everybody coming out this morning at this early hour to hear a little bit about the USGS and what we're doing with respect to unconventional play analysis. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I fully realize that most, if not all of you, came here today to see or came to expect Dr. Jim Riley, the director of the USGS, to speak to you today. Uh, Dr. Riley has been the director of the USGS for about a year and a half. Uh, he's actually a former astronaut. He's been up in the space shuttle three times, I believe. So what I'm going to do, first of all, is just start with the obvious. I am not Jim Riley. I am not the director of the USGS, nor am I a former astronaut. In fact, the farthest I've been into space has been the 75th floor of the Chase Bank Tower in downtown Houston, Texas. Actually, someone this morning reminded me that the observation deck is on the 60th floor. So I've actually been into space less than I thought I had when I walked into the room this morning. 
So on behalf of Dr. Raleigh, though, I do convey his apologies and regrets that he's not able to be here today. Uh, I know he was looking forward to attending, but you know, business uh, comes up as it normally does within government, and uh, so he was unable to attend. Having said that, what I'm going to do today is try to attempt sort of a bottoms-up perspective on how we approach uh, unconventional uh, play analysis. I've been in the industry for about 38 years. Most of that has been uh, in industry. I started with Amoco and then progressed later on to BP. And so we'll talk a little bit about how change has really permeated what we do. All of us in this room have had to go through change. I mean, this is a very dynamic, very cyclic industry things change. And so at the USGS, we have also uh, attempted to keep up with those changes as well, and in fact, try to drive some of that change uh, as we go forward. I'm told that there was a famous Greek philosopher named Heraclitus, and I'm also told that one of the things that is attributed to him is the quote or the maxim that change is the only constant in life. And so the focus in the petroleum industry has really evolved from conventional plays that started many decades ago to more of the unconventional play analysis that we now see. And that's part of a normal maturation process or, or change, if you prefer to think of it in those terms. But even within the unconventional uh, play analysis, things have changed and we've had to adapt to that. So given that backdrop, how can the USGS remain relevant and at the forefront of how we deal with unconventional play analysis and assessment? So in order to walk you through that today, what I thought I'd do is first provide you a little bit of context and background about um, uh, play analysis. And first of all, just tell you about the USGS in case you're not as familiar, familiar with us. I'll tell you a little bit about who we are and what we do. Uh, we'll talk about petroleum resource assessment priorities. We assess both conventional and unconventional resources. And we'll talk about what we mean by continuous resources. And so many people tend to conflate those terms, you know, conventional versus con unconventional versus continuous. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And then I'll move into the meat of the presentation, which is really about the evolution of how our play analysis has evolved through time. I'll show you a few case studies. I'll talk about change drivers. And then in the, um, towards the end, we'll think about the future. And everybody always wants to know, where's the industry going? Where are we going? And so we'll take out the crystal ball, shine it up a little bit, and think about where we may be going in the future. And then we'll be happy to take questions and answer, uh, discussion after that. So first of all, just in terms of the USGS, uh, we provide reliable scientific information to the public. At the end of the day, we are a federal science agency. And so what that means is that we perform the science and then we in turn provide that to policymakers, to decision makers, those people who are best in charge of, or who are in charge of best managing the nation's resources. And so as a result of that, we are perceived by, as a world leader in natural sciences, and we are a multidisciplinary organization. We have, you know, we're the nation's largest water, earth, and biological science and civilian mapping agency in the United States. And so in order for us to be successful with that, we have to have people who are well-versed in multidisciplinary approaches to the science. And I think that is one of the strengths that the USGS is actually able to bring uh, to, to our science and to our work. We were founded in 1879 by something called the Organic Act that was passed through Congress, and it provides for the, um, for the classification of the public lands and examination of the geological structure, mineral resources, and products of the national domain. So I know that's a mouthful, but basically what I want to hone, on, hone in on is that term mineral resources. Yes, it means minerals, but it also was taken to mean energy resources. 
people immediately think of oil and gas as an immediate uh, energy source, but it's more than oil and gas. It's geothermal, it's coal, it's uranium, it's gas hydrates, it's carbon sequestration. It's all those things that combine to form the energy mix for the United States as well as the world. Our initial remit was to work within the U.S. boundaries. In 1962, our remit was expanded so that we can uh, work globally, and we do. We perform assessments all over the world. And we, a large part of what we do is the geological and geophysical and geochemical work that underpins many of the resource assessments that we perform. We also look at the environmental impacts that are associated with resource extraction, things like induced seismicity, things like uh, produced waters, you know, produced waters are the largest uh, waste stream in oil and gas production, you know, and incredible uh, salinities, you know, perhaps in the order of two, three, or 400,000 parts per million. These are really hypersaline waters. What do you do with them? How do you manage that? And so we also look at, at how to, to, uh, to deal with those as well. We have to do this. We are actually mandated by law to do this. There's something called the Energy Policy and Conservation Act back in 2000, and it says, by law, we must assess undiscovered, technically recoverable resources in priority basins across the United States. And so basically what that means is that we look at, the, in terms of undiscovered resources, what's the stuff in the ground, what's yet to find, and we also look at technically recoverable, and that is an important step right there because what it basically means is what are the resources that can be extracted using the technology that's available today? Back up about 10 or 15 years ago, before the advent of hydraulic fracturing and directional drilling and all those technologies that are associated with unconventional or continuous resources, you know, there's more resource available today than was back then simply because the technology has evolved. Back then, those technologies didn't exist. We often go back and reassess basins that we've assessed maybe 10 or 15 years ago because the technology has changed. Usually when we do that, the numbers go up simply because industry has access to more resources given the new technology that's available. The other thing we do is that we use the same methodology everywhere we do an assessment. That way, if you pick up an assessment that we do in the Williston Basin, say in North and South Dakota, and you pick up an assessment in the Marcellus Shale in the Appalachian Basin, you are reasonably assured that the methodology was the same, it was performed in the same way, same way, and you can compare apples to apples in a meaningful way. And so the reason we do this is really to help underpin the nation's energy supply and energy security. As I mentioned, um, uh, we, we do this to help policy managers or policymakers and resource managers better manage their resources, and so that is a, a very important and key piece of what we do. Next, I'm gonna to move to where we are active and where our priorities are. So I'm gonna show you a couple of maps. I think somebody mentioned earlier that we're very graphical people and we're no exception to that. So the first map I'm gonna show you is a map of the United States where we have performed assessments and where we are currently involved and where we think we may be going in the future. And it's color-coded by year. Uh, the green uh, areas are uh, assessments that we completed in fiscal year 18. Uh, the red are those areas where we are currently active, and the blue is anything that actually extends out into the future, you know, fiscal year 20, uh, 20 and beyond. And as you can see, most of our work takes place in the western United States, down along the Gulf Coast in Texas and Louisiana, in the Appalachian Basin, thanks to the Marcellus and the Utica Shales, and then in the north slope of Alaska, where we have a, a fairly significant work activity uh, scope uh, currently going on mainly in response to something known as Secretarial Order 3352, which charges the USGS to update the resources uh, of the North Slope. 
So that's where we are in the United States. Um, we have a rolling three-year schedule of how we conduct these, and often we get changes to this schedule. Sometimes we receive requests from another federal agency, such as the Department of State or the Department of Defense, and we'll do assessments if they request for a particular area. Sometimes we get a request from a particular congressperson who may want us to go in and do a new assessment. Of course, whenever we do assessments, it provides um, reassurance to perhaps municipal, local, and state governments that you know, there's a future resource space for which they can be reasonably assured. It may give them the confidence to go out and float bonds to build schools, roads, hospitals, et cetera. And so these are very important, um, important pieces of work to underpin local economies in many cases. So that's the United States. The next thing I'll show you is a map of, of the world or a global map. And again, using the same color scale, you can see where we've been active in the past and where we intend to be uh, going into the future. So we've been very active in North Africa, in Central and Eastern Europe, and then a scattering of assessments uh, throughout Central Asia and, and the Far East, and then in the, uh, the sedimentary basins of Western Canada. So next I'll move to what we mean by continuous resources. I, I mentioned that earlier at the, at the beginning of the talk. What I thought I would do is just show you kind of a, a, diagram, a diagram here that attempts to portray what we mean by that. And I think everybody is more or less familiar with it, but for many, many years, industry chased what we term conventional resources. These are typically very large structures, easily discernible by seismic, uh, especially with some of the newer data. And one way to think of it is that these are resources that are, that are buoyant upon water. Oil and, gas oil and gas floats up to the top, and you can see there with the, the, the red circles that uh, I have there, you know, those are depictions of what we would term conventional resources. Conversely, if you look at unconventional resources, that's the, those are the resources down there at the bottom, things such as shale gas, tight gas, that have been delineated over the last few years, really pretty recently. But we term them continuous simply because they usually have a very large geographic extent, therefore they are continuous, they are everywhere. Um, the unconventional piece really refers to the methods uh, that are used to extract those resources, and I'll define that here in the next slide. If you compare the continuous versus the unconventional, the continuous resource, continuous is basically defined by things like uh, they could occur down dip from water saturated rocks, there's a lack of an obvious trap or a seal, uh, they typically extend over a large area, they have low permeability, and they often have unique production characteristics such as low recovery factors, uh, these things usually are in pretty quick decline, and they depend on fracture permeability, whether it's naturally occurring or perhaps artificially induced. You compare that to the unconventional bit, and basically that revolves around perhaps the fact that you need special regulatory status in order to extract those resources, or in particular, there's a need for an unusual engineering techniques. And so at least within the USGS, that's how we refer to the, the unconventional terminology there. I mentioned our methodology is consistent from assessment to assessment. And whenever we put an assessment out, it really is given as a, as a range. You know, we report assessments out in mean numbers. We run perhaps hundreds of numerical simulations to arrive at our assessment results. And for example, there you can see the Haynesville and the Bossier Shale assessment that we released about two years ago now. Uh, that was the largest gas assessment that the USGS has ever released. It was about 300 trillion cubic feet of gas. 
That's a very wide area. It extends along the, almost the entire periphery of the Gulf Coast, a very, very, very large area. But still, those are big resources. And if you want to try and think about it in terms of um, oil equivalents, you know, that 300 TCF is roughly equivalent to about 52 billion barrels of oil equivalent, just in terms of thermal equivalency. When we report that, though, we always report a range because there's always going to be uncertainty in terms of how we assess the subsurface. Everybody here knows that. And so if you look at the lower end, um, there's a, what we call a fractile, the F95. Basically, that says that there's at least a 95% chance that 133 TCF, or trillion cubic feet, could be expected to be found. Conversely, on the upper end, the F5, that means that there is a 5% chance that as much as 564 TCF could possibly be found. Yes, those are big numbers, but we're also talking about a big resource over extending over a very, very large area. I thought I'd also just illustrate the, some recent work that we did in the Wolf Camp Shale in the Permian Basin province in West Texas and southeastern New Mexico. And there you can see that we reported, a, uh, I think last year about this time, an assessment that uh, it was the largest oil assessment we ever did that came out at 46 billion barrels of oil. Again, very large numbers. Uncertainty is associated with that too, and you can see that's reflected there in the chart. We also did another assessment in the Permian that was in the Midland Basin, or perhaps the, the eastern portion of the Permian, using the same methodology, using the same um, way to depict some of these resources. And again, you know, very, very large resource bases here, which was very exciting for a lot of the people who live in, in West Texas and Southeast New Mexico. So I've given you a little bit of context. I thought it was really important to at least kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about next, just so we have a common level of understanding of what we mean by continuous resources. So next we'll talk about the evolution of how our assessments have gone through um, or have changed over the last few years, because again, the central theme of what I'm trying to get across here is change. So let me talk about two case studies. The first case study I'll show or discuss is in the Gulf Coast um, uh, petroleum systems, and in August 2007, we released an assessment of tertiary strata, and in that assessment, there are 33 conventional assessment units. An assessment unit is basically where we pull out a map and we kind of draw uh, uh, an area on a map that is meant to represent those locations that have similar geology, similar rock characteristics, uh, similar subsurface uh, characteristics by which you can attribute resources. And so in that assessment, there were 33 conventional assessments, assessment units, but only four continuous assessment units. So not, not very many. Jump ahead just a few years to March 2011. We reassessed that uh, in the Cretaceous and Jurassic, so we were a little bit lower in the stratigraphic column. But look at the number of assessment units that were assessed. There were 24 conventional, but 10 continuous. And so the ratios changed pretty dramatically in terms of how we look at the subsurface. And if you actually dig down a little deeper, if you look at the conventional assessment units, I'll draw your attention to the gas piece, which is about 19 trillion cubic feet of gas. But look at the 10 continuous assessments, 128 TCF. That is a huge change. And many times when we go in and do reassessments, the question we get asked is, well, how did you guys miss this the first time around? And I think the answer is, well, we didn't really miss it. We always knew it was there. It's just that that technology has changed that allows industry to go in and extract those resources now that they weren't, or that they had not been able to do so just a few years earlier. 
And so the question we get is, you know, what does it mean? I've had to testify before Congress several times in my three and a half years or so at the USGS, and that's the question that we often get from Congress, uh, Congress members. You know, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for my constituents? And so if you think about it, it really is around the recognition that continuous resources are going to comprise a much, much larger ratio than what we had ever thought was possible. Uh, you know, for some of the geologic characteristics, you know, hydrocarbon source rock maturation, and you know, we have to think about how all those things work in terms of trap generation or, or trap movement and formation and timing. Uh, it's around knowing the reservoir, knowing the rocks, knowing the petrophysics, uh, knowing what those properties are, and it's around the trap formation and timing and, and seals. The second case study I'll show is in the Marcellus uh, Shale in the Appalachian Basin. I think you've heard me mention that previously. So we assessed the Marcellus back in February of 2003, and you can see the results there. About one, just about two TCF of gas and about 11 million barrels of natural gas liquids. Those are things like ethane, propane, butane. You know, if you're from Louisiana like me, that's the kind of stuff you put in your, your, your burner so you can cook up a good pot of crawfish, you know. Uh, in August 2011, we reassessed the Marcellus, and in that case, we assessed 84 TCF. So we went from 2 TCF to 84 TF. That is a substantial change. Again, the question we get, what changed? But, you know, or how did you miss this? We didn't really miss it. It's just that technology has changed in that way to enable us to, uh, to go out and assess those resources. And there is new geologic information. The more information we have, the better. If we don't have any new information, we really don't do an assessment. There's no need for us to do that. But with new well information, with longer production histories, that enables us to go in and, and do new assessments. So it really is an evolution. You know, I talked about change, and it's the recognition of new technologies. That certainly brings change. It's updating our geologic models. That certainly changes, too. What's next for the Marcellus? Well, we're actually reassessing the Marcellus right now as we speak, and we will probably release an assessment of the Marcellus coming up sometime, perhaps late this year, maybe early next, depending on, uh, depending on our work priorities and how quickly we're able to, to work through this. One thing I'll point out is that the USGS never does this in isolation. We rely on industry to provide us data. We also recognize that a lot of that data is proprietary, you know, and we protect and respect the, the proprietary nature of those data. Every assessment, every piece of work that we do is publicly available. We post it up on our website, energy.usgs.gov, for those of you who might want to visit that site later on. But we also protect the proprietary nature of data, and we always aggregate the data such that it's impossible really to tell what came from who. And so for those of you who have provided us data in the past, thank you, because without you, we're unable to do our jobs. Let's talk about change drivers. And so we've already talked about new technologies and basically all of those impact the estimated ultimate recovery or EUR for given wells. And we've talked about hydraulic fracturing and, and horizontal drilling. We've talked about the production information. One thing that's really key and frankly, I think it's an area where the USGS could improve is our access to 2D and 3D seismic. Seismic obviously helps inform the tectonic history and tectonic structure of, uh, of many of the basins that we work in, but often we don't have as much data as we would like, and so that's one of the areas that we look to improve upon. That ultimately helps constrain and better define our geologic models that set the stage for all of the assessment work that we ultimately do. So let's break out the uh, crystal ball and think about what the future holds. 
I'm going to give you another quote, and I think anyone who's ever taken a Geology 101 course has had this maxim uh, introduced to them at a very early stage, and that is, the present is the key to the past. And you see there's a lot of verbiage there. It's around having data for what has been and then using uh, what has been and using that data to estimate what may happen thereafter. So what about the piece around what is to happen thereafter? Do we have new data? Do we have new ideas? In other words, how can we use change to our advantage? How can we embrace change? You know, I've heard many times where people say, oh, well, you know, the world is changing. We have to deal with it. I fundamentally disagree with that. It's really about embracing change. How can you embrace change and you know, use change in such a way that it provides perhaps a competitive advantage or perhaps changes your way of thinking so that you can get to a better idea of, of, the, uh, of the subsurface? So let's first use the past as an analog to get to the present. What if you go back 30 years ago? And in fact, we were having a conversation about this very fact earlier this morning. Uh, it's around the, the revolution in shale gas. And in fact, if you go back to 1981, which was the year I started in the industry, there were publications that were presented by USGS scientists that defined the notion of what we term continuous resources, or perhaps uh, tight gas or basin-centered gas. And these were, were uh, publications from the early 80s. And of course, it was later taken and refined and further developed by the Department of Energy and others. So it really has been a team concept. But this, this notion has been around for a while. But then it took smart people in industry to figure out how to apply this and how to actually make it work. And so we're going to, the nation, I think, will continue to rely on products like these to go forward into the future. And so the question you have to ask yourself is, well, that's great, but what's the next big opportunity? Where are we going to go in the future? And so now we'll use the present as an analog to go forward. And I'm sure you've all heard about this. It's around machine learning. It's around artificial intelligence. It's about extracting patterns in data that are difficult to obtain. You know, we, we have tons of data, but it's really difficult for a human being to sit there and pour through all the data and the reams of data that we have to come up with any patterns or any, anything that may be somewhat meaningful in terms of trying to, to derive a better model or try to better understand the subsurface. And so we're going to talk about a case study where we're actually beginning to apply some of those methods. And the first is around looking at the key assessment variables that we use in our assessments. You know, we, we use lots of well production data. Uh, we use estimated production histories. And so the longer you have some, the longer you have a field online, the more you can, or the better you can constrain that uh, resource assessment. Is there a way to somehow perhaps compress the amount of production time that you need in order to, to, um, to produce an assessment. And so that's one of the things that we're looking at. Is there a way that we can somehow use machine learning to, to better come up with estimated ultimate recoveries in shorter time spans so we don't have to wait five or 10 years or some inordinate period of time before we can release an assessment over a particular basin? Now, we want to try and be responsive, or as responsive as we can to the public in the shortest time frame possible. So that could be one example of where machine learning might actually be useful. The next is in trying to identify spatial patterns in our data. I mentioned there's tons of data. How can you extract meaningful bits of data or meaningful bits of information out of the data that we have that may help you identify future uh, patterns of production? Uh, how can you better delineate some of the boundaries that we've drawn up for our assessment units? Are they right or they, could they be improved? I certainly think we can. You know, we can always get better. 
Uh, how can you identify perhaps the factors for well spacing and what all those types of things mean? And so we're going to be working on that uh, going into the future pr pretty extensively. So with that, I think I'll draw a line under it, and uh, I'll be happy to take any questions, and I thank you for your attention. Thank you. Questions from the audience? Okay. We have mics yeah. that are over. If you would like to talk, ask a question. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to also, uh, okay, go ahead, sir. Thank you. Sure. sure. Uh, thanks for the question. That's actually pretty, uh, pretty relevant right now. Uh, this year, since January, I've been to Uzbekistan twice, to Romania, to uh, going to Georgia coming up here uh, fairly soon. Uh, I've been to Greenland twice. And so basically the relationships that we have are often with these um, national geological surveys of those countries. In many cases uh, in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, they're just trying to get a better handle on some of their oil and natural gas supplies to uh, develop independent supplies of production so they don't have to rely on foreign sources uh, for their oil and gas. But we, uh, we are very active in oil and gas uh, in uh, international. We have an international affairs group uh, that is very active in that. Thank you. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right, right here. Yeah, sorry, sir. Primarily, it's around becoming more efficient with hydraulic fracturing. Um, that is a technology that has really been in play over the last 10 or 15 years or so. It's also uh, mainly focused around uh, directional and horizontal drilling. Those are methods that expose more of the wellbore to the formation, so therefore the production rates are, uh, can be increased. You know, one thing I'll say, just from a geophysical point of view, is if you look at the percentage of the United States that is adequately mapped in order to understand minerals production uh, from an aeromag perspective, uh, LIDAR perspective, it's probably only about 5 or 10%. And so we recognize that there's a huge gap in how we can map the United States in order to provide relevant minerals information to the, to the public. And so as a result of that, uh, Congress has recently authorized $10 million uh, per year over the next several years in order to enable the USGS and uh, working with many collaborators and stakeholders to go out and begin acquiring those data so that we can map the US to a much better degree than what has already been mapped. Um, we had substantial assets deployed in Afghanistan uh, just after uh, or during the, uh, the, the, the war. And uh, a friend of mine sat across the table from a four-star general, and one of the things that he was complaining about was the fact that Afghanistan suffered from a lack of reliable mineral data. They're trying to transform their economy. And uh, so we in embarked on a substantial mapping program in Afghanistan and mapped it pretty extensively. And so now the, the common refrain we, we hear from members of Congress is, well, you've got Afghanistan mapped and my state is not, so when are you gonna map my state? And so, <laughs> 
And, and so we recognize that. I and mean, there's only so much we can do with the appropriated dollars we have. But you know, we will, we we're certainly trying to do that as quickly as we can. Yeah. Okay. Yes, back there. Hello, hi, Mahmoud Farhadi Roshan from Selixum. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, for example, when you talk about machine learning, one mm -hmm. of the problems is um, lack of getting good quality data. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think uh, this SCG, you could see a lot of um, sessions which are very encouraging to see on distributed optical fiber sensing or distributed acoustic sensing, which finds a lot of application in geophysics. How do you see the future of the two technology together? Yeah, so, uh, so first of all, thank you for uh, telling me that. I'm, I'm here to learn just like everybody else. I would look forward to going to those, uh, look forward to going to those sessions. Um, I, I don't know that I can act actually answer that right now. Uh, I, I think we are in a position where we need to learn. We're, ba we're just in baby stages right now, taking baby steps and trying to understand what all the technologies mean. So look forward to, to trying to learn more about that. Yeah. There was a uh, question. Yeah. I guess uh, I have yeah. more. Okay. Yep. Go ahead. Sorry. Go Sorry. ahead. We'll go over here first, and then we'll go well, there. Well, no, I was just going to say, oh, okay. I, I do Sorry. believe that my question was just answered, and so it's very brief. I was wanting to know what kind of AI you're deploying, but okay. it sounds like you're learning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're in learning stage, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I am Fred Amanzada from... Um, University of Southern California. They just gave me a microphone. Right, right down uh, here to your left. Right. 10 o'clock. <laughs> ah, ah, great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, first of all, you mentioned that you don't have much access to seismic mm -hmm. data. So maybe if you change your name to U.S. Geophysical Survey, <laughs> Science Survey, you might you get go. that. I like but that. More, more seriously, um, uh, you mentioned that your assessments are um, very much uh, function of the technology that um, mm -hmm. is being used. And I presume the assessments talk about recoverable rather than uh, oil and gas in place. Yeah, so. So my question is, if that is true, since oil and gas in place is less um, dependent on the technology than recoverables, mm -hmm. do you have any distinction between the two? Yeah, that, thank you for that question. That's actually a very important point. When we do an assessment, it's actually not resources in place. You know, we don't assess that. We source what is technically recoverable using technology that's out there. So, and uh, the other thing I would say is that it's resources, it's not reserves. That's often a, a term that people conflate as well. We deal with resources only because reserves imply an economic component. And the USGS really doesn't, we, we don't really deal in economics. We pretty much stick to the science. And we leave that to others to determine what the, what the reserve base might be. Um, thank you for your talk, by the way. Um, yeah. Excellent talk. Uh, I'm right down the aisle. Near okay, my, all right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was trying to, the, uh, to see with the lights. Yeah. The fiber optics. I'm with okay. Belmont Technology. We do AI, and we can probably help you. Um, I spent some time working at the Department of Energy, and I should be more familiar about the USGS. But the people in the audience for the Department of Energy were able to participate through funding opportunity announcements. Is there an opportunity for industry, oil and service companies to get access to funds from the USGS to collaborate with you? Yeah, there's always going to be collaboration. Uh, in fact, a lot of what we do is um, uh, working with um, 
state geological surveys, working with industry. And so I think the short answer to the question is yes. Um, it's, it's difficult to say how much that might be because our budgets are constantly in, in flux. Uh, as you might imagine, you know, depending on, you know, from one administration to the other, um, our budgets are somewhat subject to, to change. But the USGS has actually been fairly lucky uh, recently. Uh, we are roughly a billion dollar agency. I think we're at one time approaching 1.1 billion. We're probably just under about a billion right now. But um, absolutely, we'd love to work with uh, industry any way we can. So if you'd like to speak afterwards, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the question was, are there geopolitical considerations that we take into account? Um, by, just so I understand your question a little better, uh, from what source or, or from, from coming from where? From, from other countries, from within the United States, or? Yes, mainly from other countries. Yeah, not really. Um, you know, we have a schedule that we use to uh, perform our assessments. Uh, sometimes when we get requests to do assessments, they typically come from within the United States. We do work with other foreign geological surveys. Um, I mentioned you know, Uzbekistan and Bosnia, for example. And so one of the things that they request of us is to come in and sometimes do assessments because we are kind of seen as the, the trusted arbiter or, the, or the, you know, the, the, the truth behind the science. And so we'll sometimes do that. Um, but it is, at the end of the day, a zero-sum game. We only have so, many, so much capability, so many people to do the assessments. And so if the priorities change, if we have to move something higher in our priority, then something necessarily has to fall off the back end. And so we have to take all of that into account to make sure that we're actually delivering the, the right science to the right people at the right time for the right reason. When, when that occurs, do you encourage the countries on what type of products they may want to go first with, like magnetics yeah. or gravity or offshore? Yeah. Do you help them with those decisions? Uh, we do. And so an example of that would be in Greenland, where uh, there's currently a hyperspectral uh, survey that is uh, being proposed and will probably start uh, fairly soon. And that's something that the USGS and our minerals program has actually worked with them pretty closely on. Okay. Question just over here. Yeah. Um, the treaty that defines uh, the uses of Antarctica is set to expire in a few decades. Mm -hmm. Have we done an assessment for Antarctica? Uh, we have not. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. yeah it's I, I think uh, the, the challenge there would be data. And so if we don't have a whole lot of data, I'm not sure that we would be able to, to do much with that. Yes, sir. Can you comment a little bit more about on your range assessments, what is the largest uncertainty uh, in those? Is that the technology or is it the evaluation of the aerial extent or other technology? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a mixture of both. And I think it reflects the, the, you know, technology is always going to change. You know, that was kind of the central theme of this talk today. Technologies change, and I think as technology changes, that will have a bottom line impact on our ability to construct the right geological models. And that, you know, it, it, it's all a, it's a domino, basically. You know, if you have better data, that informs your models. If you have good models, that helps necessarily inform uh, your assessments. We have one more question over here, and then I think we'll, uh, okay. we'll be done. And if you have any other sure. questions for, for Walter or for Rob, you can catch them over here. Yeah. Yes. Good morning. Uh, morning. Talked a lot about unconventional and conventionals, and I was mm -hmm. wondering if you could um, provide us a little further insight on enhanced oil recovery. 
uh, geosequestering CO2, mm -hmm. um, that being a, a hot topic within other yeah. fields. Sure. Yeah. See what you it's have to say. Light. Yeah. One of the projects that we have in our program is a carbon sequestration project, uh, and that basically involves injecting carbon into the into the subsurface. The value proposition that we provide is that we conduct the geological studies necessary to, to really think about what are the, what's the capacity of the subsurface to accommodate X amount of carbon. And so we have a, a group that is dedicated to that. They study the, the, basically the accommodation space in the subsurface that can accommodate uh, so much carbon. The other thing that that program looks at as well is the uh, environmental impact. Uh, things like induced seismicity. You know, anytime you start injecting stuff into the ground, there's, there could be the potential of an impact. And so you know, there have been huge issues, especially in the mid-continent, with respect to induced seismicity. Uh, and, and we are looking very closely at that. We're working with a lot of the, the state surveys, in particular Oklahoma and Kansas, to better define what some of the possible impacts might be. Well, great, folks. Uh, we'd like to thank you all so much for, for being here this morning and, uh, and participating. We're, uh, we're particularly appreciative to yeah. Dr. Gidbrows for, uh, for yeah. such a, an overview so talk. Thank you. We look forward for lots more uh, okay. partnerships okay. and SCG right. and the Good. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to SCG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. Please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this episode. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to our website at seg.org slash podcast to find all our episodes and learn how you can subscribe for free directly on your phone. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Special thanks to Rihanna Collier for setting up this recording. And thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.